Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex-positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang-ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex-savvy. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick-Anderson. Before we dive into today's topics, I just want to say I am loving the emails and loving the phone calls that you guys are sending. Keep them coming. I'm noticing already some themes and patterns, and I can't wait to address as many of your questions as possible on the air. If you want to get a hold of me, you can shoot an email to Kimberly at sexsavvypodcast.com. Or if you prefer to leave a confidential voicemail, you can call my toll-free phone line at 1-844-SEX-SAVVY. Today's topic is evolution and nature and how these forces are subconsciously impacting our sexual behavior, our mate selection, and the way we express ourselves sexually. I'm going to be talking about the health benefits of semen I'll also be discussing how men can hear, see, and smell fertility in women. I'll also be talking about how women behave differently and value different traits at different phases of our menstrual cycle. I'll introduce a concept called mate guarding and explain to you how men guard their partners in ways that they don't even realize they're doing. I'll also be talking about a fetish called cuckolding. And for those of you that don't know what cuckolds are, it's men who are turned on by watching their wives or girlfriends have sex with another man. So I'm going to be talking about some of the themes associated with this fetish and how it seems to be growing in popularity. So I will, of course, have a sex IQ quiz for you, and I'll be answering a question from one of my listeners named Valerie about pubic hair. So let's get to it. One of the reasons I decided to create this podcast, as I mentioned in my initial episode, was because I see how uncomfortable people are talking about sex having discussions about sexual material or sexual topics. I see it with my patients. I see it with my friends and family. I see it in the doctor's office. I even see it with other therapists. People do not feel comfortable discussing sexual material. And that's why I developed my clinical protocol called Comfort Inducing Sexuality Dialogue that you can learn about if you are interested on my clinical website, which is KimberlyResnickAnderson.com. I developed this protocol to help facilitate a comfortable experience for my patients who have historically been unable to share aspects of their sexuality, which is why I'm so disappointed to find a product on Kickstarter called Love Sync. 
I wasn't even going to mention the name, but I decided to call a spade a spade. So what is Love Sync? Love Sync is a two-button system where both you and your partner would each get a button to place next to your bed or on the coffee table or wherever you decide to put it. And if one of you is feeling horny, you just tap the button. If your partner is also interested in being sexual, then he or she can tap the button. And if both of you tap the button at the same time, it lights up and voila, you have cleared the way for a sexual encounter. The people who develop this product claim that it takes the embarrassment out of rejection because if your partner doesn't (laughs) tap on the button, then it's not such a blow to your ego than it would be if you actually initiated or requested sex. So there's this little secret button system where you can avoid the risk of rejection in the hopes that your partner will tap on his or her button and the lights will go on and you will both know that the other is receptive to sexual contact. This to me is the epitome of why why I'm busy, why we have such mixed messages and why sex is taboo. The message is, this is not safe to speak about. God forbid I bring this up. You know, I I don't dare let you know that I'm feeling energy in my body or a desire to connect with you. I'll just tap a button. And if if you're also horny, then you tap the button. And then this light will let us know that we are both ready to be sexual. This is not the message that I would like to encourage. I think that a conversation is the way to go. So I just wanted to mention that this product exists and that I find it to be absurd. But I'm sure there are people out there who see it as appealing. There are people out there who don't want to talk about sex or initiate sex in a formal way. They would love to just tap a button and see if their partner is good to go. If you're one of those people, if this is appealing to you, if you would purchase this product, shoot me an email or call me and let me know what the appeal is for you. And I would love to follow up with you about this in a future episode. No doubt sex can get messy. I'm not talking about the psychological and emotional entanglements of sex. I'm talking about the actual bodily fluid exchange that is associated with sexual activity. I'm talking about saliva and sweat and semen and vaginal secretions and how for some, these bodily fluids can kind of be a turnoff or or be disgusting. And there was a, a really interesting study published in 2012 by a group of Dutch psychologists that showed that when women are sexually aroused, their disgust tolerance is significantly increased. And they did a study with two groups of women. One group of women was sexually aroused, the other was not. And both groups of women were asked to touch a bloody bone and put their hand into a bowl of used condoms. The women who were sexually aroused reported significantly lower levels of disgust than the women who were not aroused. And in case you're worried about any sort of hygienic consequences, the 
bone wasn't really bloody. It was red ink and the condoms weren't actually used. They were just covered in lube. But the point is that women who are turned on are much more comfortable and able to tolerate things that are normally perceived as disgusting. You won't be surprised to hear that when it comes to oral sex, many men prefer if a woman swallows while he's having an orgasm and ejaculating than if she doesn't swallow. Some women are highly disgusted at the thought of swallowing a man's semen or even having semen deposited in her vagina during penetrative intercourse. And I sometimes will use information from evolutionary biology to help women feel less disgusted by semen. And as it turns out, there are many health benefits to semen. It's actually been shown in research to be a natural antidepressant and to improve mood. It can also reduce anxiety. It can improve sleep. There's actually melatonin in seminal plasma, which can make it easier to fall asleep and stay asleep. Semen also improves energy and improves concentration. It improves memory and cognition, and it assists with pregnancy maintenance for women who are of the childbearing years. This can often be an intervention or a good motivator to help them if they're pregnant because pregnancy maintenance is often a concern. Women worry that they might miscarry or have preeclampsia or some other sort of problem. And semen can help with fertilization and sperm motility. It can help with uh, uterine growth. It can decrease risk for preterm labor. It can help with cervical ripening and facilitation of labor, which is why you may have heard doctors recommend having intercourse if a woman is past her due date to see if that can activate labor. It also increases female-initiated sexual behavior. So having semen either deposited into your vagina or by swallowing it can make women hornier and more likely to initiate sexual contact. And women who do not use condoms because they don't have to worry about pregnancy or sexually transmitted infections have statistically significantly more sex than women who use condoms, suggesting that there's something in the seminal plasma that helps women value and enjoy and participate in sex more frequently. Semen also reduces pain. It has analgesic properties, opioid peptoids, beta endorphins, oxytocin, serotonin, that can decrease pain temporarily as well. So when women hear about all the health benefits of semen, sometimes it helps motivate them. If they think, I'm going to sleep better, I'm going to have more energy, I'm going to have less depression, I'll have less pain, it'll help me with my pregnancy, sometimes that is enough of a motivator to help women be receptive to sex and even appreciate the opportunity to have sex because they can really benefit from that seminal plasma. So nature clearly knows what she's doing, right? Nature and evolution are dictating the way we behave sexually. And sometimes nature can have an impact that leaves us feeling confused or conflicted. So for example, I have women come to me that say they feel like a sort of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde when it comes to sexual attraction. One day they tell me about that obnoxious, aggressive guy at work who's a total jerk and completely offensive. And then a week later, they tell me that they had a sex dream about him. 
Well, I tell these women they're not crazy. And I explain to them that there is research that shows that heterosexual or straight women who are premenopausal value different traits at different times of the month depending on our fertility status. So when we're at peak fertility or when we're ovulating, we value things that at other times of the month would be maybe offensive to us or a turnoff to us. Since prehistoric times, women, human females, have been faced with evolutionary trade-offs. And the dilemma is, do we go for the good genes or for the good mate? Should genetic fitness be more valuable than loyalty and stability? Are masculine features worth more than an investment in sticking around and helping raise junior? Is an aggressive, dominant guy more attractive than a trustworthy, loyal provider? Well, the answer to all of these questions is that it really depends on a woman's fertility status. I want to introduce to you now a concept called the ovulatory shift hypothesis, which is also known as a dual mating strategy and the good genes theory. And it suggests that evolutionary forces are driving our sexual behavior, women, in profound ways that are subtle and unconscious, but shaping how we behave sexually. Evolution is definitely calling the shots here. Okay, so what's the difference? What do we value and look for in a man when we're fertile that we don't necessarily appreciate when we're not at peak fertility? Well, there's been lots of studies, actually, a lot of research done in this area. And we know that women actively work to make themselves look more attractive when they're ovulating. So that might mean wearing more makeup or more jewelry or clothing that's more provocative, maybe showing a little more cleavage, maybe the jeans are a little bit tighter. And again, this is all happening subconsciously. So women aren't aware of the fact that they're ovulating and say, oh, I'm ovulating, I'm gonna wear extra lipstick today and you know this tight blouse. It just happens naturally. Also, women tend to fantasize more about other men when they're fertile and to engage in flirting with other men as well. And here's something that might be disturbing to hear, but women are much more likely to cheat and be unfaithful during peak fertility. There was a study published in Current Anthropology in 2005 that showed rates of extra pair paternity, which is basically getting pregnant by a man other than your primary partner, range from 1% to 55%, depending on the population. One study showed that one in 12 pairs of fraternal twins have different fathers. One in 12 pairs of fraternal twins have different dads, according to one study. That's insane. Women who are ovulating also tend to find masculine men and characteristics more attractive. And what do I mean by masculine? Well, there are stereotypically masculine features which are correlated with genetic fitness. And genetic fitness is basically the measurement of how well someone's genes would do in terms of making a, a hearty offspring. So men who are lacking in the masculinity department are more vulnerable than men who are genetically fit. And some of the features of genetic fitness include height, facial symmetry, body symmetry, a deep voice. So men with deeper voices tend to have more children. Men with copious body hair are also more genetically fit. 
And men with a competitive and dominant nature are considered to be sexy when a woman is ovulating. So what else do we know about masculinity? Well, we know that symmetry is considered masculine and genetically helpful. By symmetry, we mean whether each side of your face is the same. So imagine just taking your face and sort of slicing it down the middle through the nose and seeing how similar it is on both sides. There's actually a bunch of apps online where you can measure your facial symmetry and play around with that and and see how you would look with one side of your face on both sides of your face. V-shaped torsos, so think opposite of A, V, where you have broad shoulders and and a smaller waist. Also darker skin, has been associated with healthy sperm, healthier sperm. This has to do with protection from ultraviolet rays, which destroy folate. And sperm, which is high in folate, tends to have better mobility and better motility. In terms of facial features, broad chins, narrow eyes, flared cheeks, pronounced eyebrows, and protruding foreheads are considered to be masculine facial features. So if you want to think of someone with a masculine face, think Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you want to think about the opposite of that, someone with a softer facial features, think of, for example, Leonardo DiCaprio, such as larger eyes. So hypermasculine facial features include narrow eyes, like little beady eyes. But think of big, beautiful eyes, like Leo's eyes. And larger eyes are associated with stability, nurturing, and loyalty. When women are ovulating, we rate facial scars as sexy. Can you guess why? Well, it's because when we're fertile, we value traits of aggression and a willingness to engage in battle. There was a study published in 2009 that showed that facial scars, especially ones that appear to have been earned during fights, Physical fights were shown to increase attractiveness in men as short-term partners, not long-term partners, short-term partners. Basically, we want their genes, we want their seed, and then we're done with them. Facial scars may advertise valuable information about a man, such as his willingness to protect. He's the guy you want around if a burglar breaks in during the night or if your neighbor's pit bull gets loose while you're watering the flowers. Fertile women, interestingly, prefer the scent of males who score high on a questionnaire-based dominance scale. What? We want dominant competitive guys? Well, yeah, when we're ovulating, we do. There was a study published by Havlicek in 2005 that showed a positive correlation between male dominance and odor sexiness when rated by women at peak fertility, but not at other phases of the menstrual cycle. So we like dominant guys when we are fertile, but not at other times of the month. Women who are ovulating also find competition and dominance toward other men, so intra-sex competition as sexy. This is would be the guy who humiliates and picks on the smaller guy, the nicer guy at the party that you think is a jerk, but then you find yourself attracted to him and don't know why. Well, it's because you're ovulating. All right, here's another piece of, of research that may be surprising. When women are fertile, we rate promiscuity in men as sexy and faithfulness in men as unsexy. What? Well, it's because promiscuity is highly associated with genetic fitness. So when we're ovulating, when we're under the influence of those hormones, we find ourselves attracted to this otherwise offensive trait. So even though that masculine guy may kick the burglar's ass or save you from that pit bull, 
He may not stick around to help you raise the children. Like I said, it's a trade-off. Just as women don't realize that we are under the influence of hormones, men don't realize that they may be attracted to women because she is fertile. I'm going to share some fascinating research with you now that suggests that men can actually see, smell, and hear fertility. So there may be something to the old saying, gentlemen prefer hips. Because throughout history and across all cultures, women with so-called hourglass figures have epitomized beauty. If you want to picture what I mean by hourglass figure, think of Marilyn Monroe or Sophia Loren. Men subconsciously perceive ample breasts and broad hips as reliable indicators of a woman's capacity to bear and nurse children. Well, indeed, these features are reliable indicators of fertility. Women with larger breasts and symmetrical, by the way, same on both sides, narrow waists and noticeably larger hips have 30% higher levels of estradiol, which makes them three times more likely to conceive than women who don't have that ideal waist-to-hip ratio of 7 to 10. There was a really interesting study published in 2007 by Jeffrey Miller from the University of New Mexico, and he showed that women who were lap dancers in gentlemen clubs earned more money in tips per shift when they were ovulating than women who were not ovulating. And he measured tip earnings by lap dancers over a two-month period based on menstrual cycle status. And women who were ovulating earned $335 per shift in tips. Women who were neither ovulating nor menstruating, that would be called the luteal phase, earned $265 per shift. And women who were menstruating, who were having their period at the time that they were dancing up on stage, earned $185 in tips per shift. That's really fascinating. How did the men know that the women were ovulating? Could they see? Could they smell? Was there something about the women that in the way that they danced, that they felt sexier because they were ovulating? Was it subconscious? This is really interesting, and I'm determined to try to replicate this study here in Los Angeles. I want to try to do it again using lap dancers in strip clubs, but I also want to go into a non-sexual environment like a restaurant or a hair salon and see if women earn more tips when they're ovulating than when they don't ovulate, even outside of a sexual context. So that's going to be really, really fun research to do. There was a really interesting study published in 2004 in England where men were asked to rate a series of digital photos of women's faces at different stages of their menstrual cycle. So women were told not to wear any makeup, to pull their hair back away from their face, and appear as similar as possible each week. And photos were taken of them during week one, week two, week three, week four. The men were then asked to rate the attractiveness of the faces from week one to week four. And it is incredible, but the men consistently rated the photo from the week where the woman was ovulating as the most attractive photo. So this suggests that there is some sort of intuitive perception of fertility that men can pick up on because how else would they consistently rate that 
photo as most attractive. Well, turns out there are some facial changes that we've been able to document when a woman is ovulating. Her face is more symmetrical. Her eyes are wider and her pupils are more dilated. Women have fuller lips with more natural color when they are ovulating and improved skin tone and skin color when they are fertile. So there's no doubt about it. Women are more attractive naturally, even without makeup, when they are fertile. I think I'm gonna go back to that research and find the photos that were used and put them up on my website, sexsavvypodcast.com. So you can go there and see the subtle differences and you can guess which pictures were the ovulation photos versus the non-ovulation photos. That'll be a fun little exercise. So not only can men see fertility, but there's research to suggest that men can hear fertility in female voices as well. There was a study published in 2008 by Pipitone and Gallup where women were instructed to count from one to 10 into a recorder once a week for four weeks. And they were instructed to count in the exact same way each time. Then men were asked to rate the voices from week to week and state which sound, which voice was most attractive to them. And not surprisingly, the men consistently rated the voice from the week of peak fertility as the most attractive and feminine voice. So vocal cues are a reliable indicator of genetic fitness. Cyclic hormones likely affect the physical property of a woman's voice and larynx. And voices that are higher in frequency are considered to be more attractive and more feminine. And the frequency of a woman's voice is slightly higher. It's a little bit raised up during ovulation. Also, there's research to suggest that men can smell fertility as well. There was a study published in 2006 by Havlicek where women were instructed to wear cotton pads in their armpits for 24 hours without showering, without using deodorant. And these were naturally cycling women, meaning that they were not on birth control pills. And then men were asked to rate the scents from the cotton pads worn by women during their ovulation phase and also during their non-ovulation phase. And men consistently rated the scent of the cotton pad during the ovulation phase as more pleasant and more attractive than the cotton pads worn during the non-ovulatory period. And so this suggests that men may have an unconscious capacity to smell opportunities for procreation. So given this research, folks, men can hear, see, smell fertility. I wonder if they can taste fertility as well. I'm sure there's research coming out soon that will suggest that too. But all of this to me is suggestive that there's a lot going on under the surface that is subconscious and that people have no idea is happening. So, how sex savvy are you? Let's take this week's Sex IQ quiz and find out. It's time for this week's Sex IQ quiz. Okay, question number one. A healthy male develops enough sperm in a two-week period to impregnate all of the women in A, Rhode Island, B, Europe, 
C. China, or D. On Earth? The answer is D. A healthy man produces enough sperm in a two-week period to impregnate all of the women on Earth. That's a lot of semen. What's interesting is that unlike men who can sort of whip up a batch at any point on a dime, women are actually born with all of the eggs that they're ever going to have. They actually develop in utero. And that means that half of every human being's genetic makeup was actually formed in his or her grandmother. By the time your mother was born, she was carrying the egg that with your father's sperm turned into you. Okay, question number two. Women with symmetrical breasts are less likely to develop breast cancer. True or false? The answer is actually true. Symmetrical breasts are one of those indicators of genetic fitness, and women whose breasts are congenitally two different sizes have a slight increased risk for developing breast cancer. Okay, question number three. Women report increased sexual satisfaction with age. True or false? The answer to this is definitely true. So although sexual frequency and activity decreases as women age, satisfaction significantly increases. There are four main reasons for this based on my clinical experience. The first is that after women go through menopause, they're no longer worried about unwanted pregnancy, so they feel freer to engage in sexual activity without that concern. Also, as women age, they tend to reject the the cultural stereotypes of beauty, the beauty myth that gets perpetuated about how women should look and how much they should weigh and how their breasts should be perky, and they just are no longer prey to those sorts of cultural expectations. Women also report an increased satisfaction due to less focus on penetrative sex and more focus on other types of pleasuring. Finally, I think the reason that women are able to enjoy sex more as they age is because they're less invested in men's pleasure and more invested in their own pleasure. They learned to take ownership and celebrate their own sexual satisfaction. And I think for many women for many years, They feel like sex is for men, and as they age, I think women feel like they deserve to have sexual pleasure as well. So I think all of these reasons combined explain why women report increased satisfaction as they age. So if men can hear, see, and smell fertility, and women are most likely to cheat when they're ovulating, Have men been genetically engineered to intuitively understand the risk of being cheated on? Well, according to research published in 2005 by Gangested, the answer to that question is yes. When women are ovulating, men engage in what's called mate guarding, where they are more loving, more attentive, more jealous and proprietary, more monopolizing of their partner's time, more suspicious and more likely to randomly call their partner's cell phone or text them just to see what they are up to. Research also suggests that less masculine men mate guard significantly more than masculine men, perhaps unconsciously sensing their own vulnerability, and less attractive women are mate guarded during ovulation, 
but highly attractive women tend to be mate guarded all the time. Is this nature's way of subtly letting us know when we need to pay attention? Research by Gordon Gallup suggests that men thrust deeper and harder when women are ovulating or after a man has been separated from his partner for a period of time. Perhaps this is his way of showing dominance, or perhaps it's his way of displacing semen that may have been deposited by a rival male. Speaking of rival males, there's research out of Australia that suggests that themes of competition that are depicted in porn are able to increase the quality and quantity of sperm in men. Men were asked to watch porn depicting a man and a woman engaging in sex, and they were also asked to watch porn depicting two men competing for the same woman. And when studying the ejaculate, it was clear that the themes of competition did increase the mobility, motility, and overall genetic fitness of the sperm, which suggests the concept of sperm competition or sperm wars as a major evolutionary force. I want to stick with this theme of competition for a couple of minutes because in my clinical practice, I'm seeing more and more men who identify themselves as cuckolds. For those of you who aren't familiar with cuckolding, it's a fetish where men are sexually aroused by watching their wives or girlfriends have sex with another man. And this is definitely on the rise. I used to have maybe one or two cuckolds a year that would seek my counsel. Now I have more like one or two a month. And Google has reported that there has been a steady increase for cuckolding as a search on the internet. So let me tell you a little bit about this fetish. Men experience this fetish in many different ways. And for some, it's simply a titillating fantasy to imagine their wives being sexually pleasured by another man. For others, it is more of a requirement. They have to think about or fantasize about that in order to get hard, stay hard, and have an orgasm. Other men enjoy stories, listening to stories of their partner's former sexual exploits, and they want nitty-gritty details, and they want to hear everything about how another man was able to bring their wife or girlfriend to orgasm. Then there are men who are actually interested in engaging in cuckolding or who are dependent on cuckolding in order to complete the phases of sexual response. So I've seen all of these manifestations in my practice, And some guys, they stick with fantasy and that's all it ever is. For other men, it escalates into a need to engage behaviorally in the fetish. There are two major themes associated with cuckolding. Traditionally, cuckolding was perceived as the ultimate humiliation for a man, where they were forced to watch someone else pleasure their partner, someone who had a bigger penis or more sperm or more powerful sperm, better technique, better able to bring the partner to orgasm. And they were forced to witness this sort of against their control and be humiliated in this way. Some men have reported 
that they have a fantasy of being forced to drink the more powerful man's urine or swallow the more powerful man's semen. Others have reported that they've actually engaged in such behaviors. Then there's a, a sort of new, more modern faction of cuckoldism, if you will, that's about power and control. So rather than feeling humiliated, these men feel empowered instead of being forced to watch, they're allowed to watch. The other guy is the warm-up act, and they're the so-called headliner. I treated a man who would say to his wife, the plumber will be here at three o'clock, and I want you to give him a blowjob, okay? And then his wife would agree to perform oral sex on the plumber, and the husband was proud and empowered. He would be someone who has what's called a hot wife fetish, where he gifts other men, he bestows other men with his wife's hotness, sort of like a sharing of property, so that the other men respect him and see him as a powerful figure. Some guys like to be the ones who are screening and choosing and orchestrating the sexual encounters. Other men prefer that their girlfriend or partner find a man and bring him home, and they enjoy the element of surprise in not knowing in advance who is going to be the guy that pleasures their wife. It's not uncommon for these men to have a history of being cheated on. Some of these guys will tell me that they were so humiliated when they discovered their partner had been unfaithful, that they in some way eroticized that humiliation and turned the tables, so to speak, to use it to their advantage. And they are, in essence, creating the cheating by allowing it to happen and witnessing it. But at least they're in control. They know what's going on, and they're not being made a fool of behind their back. There's a whole nother group of guys who don't refer to themselves as cucks, but rather as cuck makers. These are the guys who get off at the thought of humiliating other men and turning them into cuckolds without their knowledge. I'm going to give you a clinical example. I treated a man who was sleeping with a married woman. He knew that she was married and he was turned on by the fact that she had a husband but was willing to sleep with him. He knew that her husband came home at 6.30 every day, so he would show up at her apartment at about 6, instruct her to give him a blowjob, and then swallow his semen. Then he would say to her as he was leaving, I want you to kiss your husband on the mouth as soon as he gets home. And what he told me in therapy was that he was rendering this other guy a cuck or a homosexual or a fool or whatever he wanted to project onto him by having him unwittingly swallow his semen through his wife's kiss. And there was intense arousal around this being able to affect this other man without him knowing. My patient felt super powerful in sort of getting away with this. And part of the fantasy for him was that his that the other guy, the husband, would discover or suspect or notice or challenge his wife and say, 
you know, I taste semen in your mouth. Who have you been giving a blowjob to? And that she would then have to explain herself. So there was a very elaborate fantasy around how the other guy would feel, how the other guy would react, how the woman would feel if her husband found out. And he would then masturbate to all of these potential scenarios. Let's talk pubic hair. I get a lot of questions from both women and men about pubic hair and whether it's best to wax or shave or let things grow au naturel. I have an email from a listener named Valerie, and she wrote, I hate my pubic hair. I think it's gross and disgusting. I wax it on a regular basis. My husband feels weird when he goes down on me because it feels like he's giving oral sex to a young girl. He also said that he heard waxing regularly is not healthy. Is this true? Okay, well, first of all, Valerie, thank you for the question. And we're still not exactly sure why we have pubic hair at this stage of evolution, but we do know that it is home to some specialized sweat glands called the apocrine sweat glands. And these glands secrete sweat with fats and proteins. And when these proteins and fats are broken down by the microorganisms that live in these regions, due to the warm environment, they create sort of a distinctive odor or our signature scent. Some people refer to this as pheromones. The scent is key in terms of sexual attraction. So this is not a smell that we're aware of on a conscious level. This is something that is sort of subconsciously perceived. And by shaving and waxing, we're sort of messing with the scent and interfering with the pheromones and sort of messing with nature a little bit. There's clearly a cultural trend to go hairless. I'm sure most of you are aware that waxing and shaving is really common right now um, in the world, not just in our country. But pubic hair has been in and out of fashion over the centuries, and it's not the first time in history that we have preferred uh, going hairless. We have documentation to suggest that women removed pubic hair in ancient Egypt. We also have some documentation that shows that in the 15th and 16th century in Europe, women removed pubic hair. They primarily got rid of the pubic hair back then to decrease their chances of getting what we now call crabs, which is actually pubic lice, because the hair provides a nice warm environment for those little critters to thrive. Women would wear a little pubic hair rug or toupee called a merkin to cover up the fact that they were trying to prevent crabs so they would not be perceived as unhygienic. In Korea, pubic hair is a sign of fertility and femininity. And because women and men have less overall body hair than Caucasian women and men, there's a fashion trend in South Korea of pubic hair transplants. So they want to have more hair to express that femininity and fertility. But the pubic hair is indeed a sign of sexual maturity. There's no doubt about that. And that's why many women leave a so-called landing strip when they get a Brazilian wax so that there's some symbolism or some proof of sexual maturity. Some men, like your husband, Valerie, think that 
without any hair, a woman's genitals look like they're too prepubescent, and that can be a turnoff for men who are actually aroused by the sexual maturity of adult women. So we're not sure exactly why we still have pubic hair, actually. Many scientists believe that it serves as a protective barrier to help stop bacteria and other pathogens from entering into the vagina, and that by having this barrier, it decreases risk for yeast infections or vaginitis or urinary tract infections. Other scientists believe that the pubic hair serves as a cushion, like a pillow, to absorb the pressure during intercourse. Others believe that the pubic hair keeps the vagina at just the right temperature. There was a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it reported that 83% of women either wax, shave, or tidy up down there in some form. And of those 83% percent of women, 60% reported that they remove hair for hygienic reasons. So the hair can make it harder to keep dry and free of sweat that can cause offensive odors. And some women say that they just feel cleaner when their hair is removed. By removing the hair, though, we're also removing the barrier so bacteria can get in. But in the end, research shows that there's really no difference in terms of whether we are hairless or have hair in terms of cleanliness. So it really boils down to personal preference and comfort. There's definitely a trend right now toward removal of pubic hair, at least for women. And men report that they prefer bare as opposed to leaving the pubic hair at about 60% versus 40% of men who would rather have a woman keep her pubic hair. I've seen every combination of these preferences that you can imagine in my office. I've seen men who want no hair for their partner. I've seen men who want hair for their partner. I've seen women who are disgusted like Valerie by their pubic hair. I've seen women who value their pubic hair and are offended or insulted when their partners ask them to wax or shave. In terms of hygienics, as I said, it really boils down to it doesn't make a difference. If you feel cleaner and more comfortable without pubic hair, that's fine. If you like having pubic hair and it's not bothersome to you, then that's fine too. This will shift. The pendulum always swings. And I am predicting within the next 10 to 15 years, if not sooner, that this wave of hair removal will die down and we'll go back to valuing pubic hair. So there's your answer, Valerie. I hope that was helpful. And I appreciate the email. So here's a recap for today. Research suggests that men can see, smell, and hear fertility, that they can sense their own vulnerability to being cheated on, especially when women are ovulating. So they mate guard. This biologic pressure to be the winner, the guy whose sperm fertilizes the egg, makes men sexually responsive to themes of competition and dominance. Sometimes this gets eroticized in a fetishistic manner. Some guys develop, and if you can't beat them, join a mentality by rendering themselves impotent on various levels. Other guys make it their mission to spread their seed as far and wide as possible. Women will need to continue making those evolutionary trade-offs and men will continue to assess their vulnerability to rival sperm. 
And we will all continue to make choices that are ruled by these unconscious forces. In the meanwhile, I offer evolution as an explanation, not an excuse, for some of our sexual choices and behavior. If you can relate to any of these changes or shifts, if one day you don't notice a woman and then suddenly she grabs your attention, if you are turned off by the jerk one day and then suddenly thinking about him, let me know. Share your stories. Thanks for tuning in.